Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC, or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance, or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. On today's episode, we are speaking with Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC in Houston, Texas, about the topic of HIPAA and health apps. As technology evolves and features are adopted by healthcare consumers, so does the need for either new regulations and or guidance on existing regulations. This radio show highlights the privacy rule and the security rule in the context of PHI sales and marketing, as well as addressing the recent HHS facts on health apps. We will learn to appreciate privacy and security concerns related to marketing and or the sale of PHI, address the region HHS frequently asked questions on healthcare apps, and learn risk mitigation tips to reduce legal liability. So hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me today on First Talk Compliance. Thank you, Catherine. As always, I'm delighted to be on any of your programs and anything affiliated with First Healthcare. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. We're always very, very happy to be associated with you. So I'm very excited that you're here. So let's dig right in here. Can you describe for us, first of all, the evolution of HIPAA? Certainly. And it's important to appreciate the evolution of HIPAA because initially the law was passed in August of 1996 which means that we're coming up on its 23-year anniversary. So the law itself passed in 1996, and for those who were practicing at that time, a lot of focus was on one of the main titles or provisions called the Kennedy Bomb Act. And that had to do with COBRA, or the portability of health insurance. So that's one facet of HIPAA. Another facet of HIPAA, which is equally as important and to which everyone on this radio show can relate to or those listeners who are on, basically has to do with the privacy and security of our protected health information. And we need to fast forward from 1996 into the early 2000s. And in about 2002 is when the privacy rule came into effect. From there, we started looking at the security rule, which became effective in 2005. So let's stop for a moment and parse out the privacy rule from the security rule. The privacy rule deals with just that, the confidentiality of an individual's protected health information. And there are certain facets of the privacy rule which are in fact very distinguishable from the security rule. One of those is that the privacy rule pertains to all types of protected health information, whether it is oral or written or electronic, the privacy rule covers it all. So that's the first thing. The second thing, which again, everyone who has ever gone to a doctor's office or a hospital knows about, is the notice of privacy practices, as well as the HIPAA authorization form that we fill out so that the provider knows 
yes, I can send your PHI to a lawyer, for example, or to a family member or to another physician. So those are some examples of the privacy rules nuances. The security rule pertains really to electronic protected health information that is created, received, maintained, or transmitted. And again, that became effective in around 2005. So then we fast forward for a bit of time to 2009. And that is when the High Tech Act passed. And the High Tech Act built upon HIPAA, the privacy rule, and the security rule, and expanded upon the breach notification rule, as well as emphasizing the liability of not only covered entities, but business associates and subcontractors. And again, that liability was not expressed before, but it was implied in the privacy rule and in the federal register. So after high tech was implemented, a couple of key items come into play. First, another government agency, the Federal Trade Commission, promulgated its own breach notification rule. So typically HIPAA comes under the purview of the United States Department of Health and Human Services, and specifically the Office for Civil Rights. Having said that, in that breach notification rule, for HIPAA purposes, it only applies to the three main buckets, and that is the covered entities, and there are three subsections of covered entities. There are providers, there are clearinghouses, and there are insurance companies. So those are your three types of covered entities. Now, obviously, providers encompass a lot of different entities, and we have labs and hospitals and physicians' offices and ambulatory surgery centers and so on. So that's one item. The next item are business associates, and those are entities or persons that are in direct contract with covered entities, and then you have subcontractors which are contracting with business associates. So that's that flow of information. And that's where HIPAA's breach notification rule comes into play, anyone who fits into those categories. The Federal Trade Commission said, well, even if you don't fit under one of the umbrella buckets under HIPAA, you still can face liability under the Federal Trade Commission Act. So the Federal Trade Commission Act kind of filled the gap there, as well as some state laws as well. Not only did we see the breach notification rules come out, we had two interim rules which were published in the Federal Register in 2009 and 2010. And then we fast forward to January 25th, 2013. And that is when the final omnibus rule passed. And the site for that is 78 Federal Register. 5566. And again, the date was January 25th, 2013. That's when people really started kicking HIPAA compliance into high gear because of the penalties as well as the nuances now associated with the Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Act, also known as GINA. So that's where we're at. Okay, great overview. Okay, so, and then what about ePHI? What's covered under ePHI? Again, that relates back to the security rule. And many entities 
oftentimes ask me, well, does this include CD-ROMs? Does it include USB drives? And the answer to that is yes. It also includes information that's sent via email, information that's placed up in a shared file such as Dropbox or the Microsoft Share File System or Citrix, something like that. And it relates to, again, any information that is created, maintained, received, or transmitted is considered being in electronic format. So basically, anything that is not written, handwritten on paper, <laughs> or typed on paper as a paper copy, or that is said verbally and not recorded. Sounds comprehensive there. Actually, speaking of comprehensive, can you describe a comprehensive risk analysis? I can. And it's one of the areas that is really ripe for violations and for fines, but it's also one of the greatest tools an organization has to mitigate their risk. And under the security rule, an annual risk analysis is required. Oftentimes when I've gone into organizations to do a risk analysis and another entity has done one for them or they've done it internally, oftentimes it is inadequate. So what is an inadequate risk analysis? Well, one is that it doesn't address every single line item in the security rule. And that's important because the security rule assesses a myriad of technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. So a good risk analysis includes interviews of employees across the spectrum of levels ranging from the environmental services and the receptionist all the way up to the C-suite and everyone in between. It also means making sure that one either visits a data center or has the SOC reports from that data center to make sure that the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the data is maintained. So that's also a crucial factor. And Transitioning into a comprehensive risk analysis, a comprehensive one really addresses not only every single item in the security rule, but there's also a list of inventory items. There is a list of who the organization has a business associate agreement with when that was executed and if it's been updated and whether or not they still have a relationship with that entity. It relates to, in some cases, this goes beyond a risk analysis, but do you have a legal hold policy so that you know you may have to retain those records longer than the six years because the court has said you need to retain those records? Are you treating minors? Because minors have a different statute of limitations period associated with how long their medical records need to be maintained. So all of those factors really delve into a comprehensive risk analysis, but overall there are two things that need to be focused on. First, it's addressing every single technical, administrative, and physical safeguard requirement in the security rule. And secondly, it's relating it back to the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the data. 
So now what other agencies enforce HIPAA other than HHS? Well, I mentioned the Federal Trade Commission and there have been some examples from about 2008 onward where the Federal Trade Commission has said, yes, this is a consumer protection issue, so we are going to enforce the violation. And three examples were fines against CVS, Rite Aid, and more recently, the Henry Sheen Dental EHR. And they focus on marketing as well as the technical, physical, and administrative safeguards. So if an entity is setting forth on their website that they're HIPAA compliant and they're not, they can in fact get in trouble by the Federal Trade Commission. So the Federal Trade Commission's one. State agencies can also enforce HIPAA and typically all states now have a state HIPAA provision. Oftentimes in Texas, for example, Texas House Bill 300 says if it's not addressed in our state law, then the parameters set forth in federal HIPAA apply. And that's because federal HIPAA says we are not meant to be the ceiling, but we are meant to be the foundation. So you can have more safeguards or more requirements, but you can't go below the thresholds that the federal government has set in HIPAA. Another way that HIPAA violations can come out is through securities laws. So as you can imagine, a security incident involving PHI is a material event. And one example of that is the community health systems data breach, which occurred in, let's see, 2014. And if you look in their August 2014 8K filings with the SEC, Community Health Systems described what happened and said there was PHI involved, we had a breach, and we believe that this many patients had PHI affected. The Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield breach is another example of that. So in some, there are potential reporting obligations to the Securities and Exchange Commission. There's HHS. There's the Federal Trade Commission. There's also the Food and Drug Administration, which has some jurisdiction over certain types of mobile applications and medical devices. And then there's also the Federal Communications Commission. So that kind of rounds out our agencies. Great. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, and my guest today is Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law in Houston, Texas, about the topic of HIPAA and health apps. Rachel, can an entity be liable for more than one HIPAA violation? I assume they probably can. So can they be held liable by multiple government agencies is really the best way to translate that. And the answer absolutely is yes. And one of those examples is the accretive breach that occurred around 2012. And that occurred in the state of Minnesota. And the Minnesota State Attorney General brought a case against accretive and then the OCR, which as we know is part of HHS, find them, and the Federal Trade Commission find accretive for having unencrypted laptops that were stolen and exposed the protected health information of a covered entity. Does marketing language matter 
If so, why and what measures can be taken to mitigate risk? Yes, marketing language does matter. And a great example, again, is the Henry Sheen dental case. And also when we look at e-clinical work, that is a major EHR. And in fact, a whistleblower brought a case under the False Claims Act against e-clinical works, which ended up settling for $155 million. And the reason that the settlement was so high and the acts were so egregious was that e-clinical works basically lied to the government, which in turn led the providers to rely on their disclosures, not only to the government, but the disclosures on their website saying that they were HIPAA compliant and they met the meaningful use standards when they did not. So that's one very expensive marketing uh, snafu, so to speak. Another one, whenever I go in, yeah, yeah, not cheap. (laughs) No. No, because probably somebody just put that on. Yeah, probably somebody just put that on there, right? Just, you know, the marketing people probably just put it on there. I'm sure that's probably what they argued as well, right? That's exactly right. And I think it goes to the point you were alluding to, Catherine, language does matter. What you put out there does matter. If you are not HIPAA compliant, then don't say anything close to that. And in fact, I encourage my clients when I do the compliance side to do three things. First, if they are engaged in marketing, either in person and or on the web or social media, I always indicate that A, they should choose their words carefully because there's no certificate that can be given that says you're HIPAA compliant. And that's in the omnibus rule where the HHS answered the question, is HIPAA certification possible? And they really said, sure, it helps that you got the stamp, but that is not a be-all, end-all for us because you could be in compliance one day and out of compliance the next day. So that's where that comes from. Internally, I always tell my clients to strive towards a culture of compliance. That's very important. In terms of how you may want to phrase that externally, if you undergo your annual risk analyses, you have adequate policies and procedures, you encrypt at rest and in transit, and you're doing everything else that you can honestly check the boxes on in terms of the security rule, then you just need to be very careful as to what language you're using. External sales reps also need to be careful and make sure that they have a business associate agreement in place and or a non-disclosure agreement at a minimum, and it should be a mutual non-disclosure, because you don't want to start exchanging information without that protection. So that's what I tell externally in terms of in-person sales. And in terms of mitigating risk, again, use a business associate agreement for that. And B, make sure that you have legal and compliance reviewing whatever you're putting on your website and in your literature. Great advice. How does the Cybersecurity Act of 2015 relate to healthcare apps? Well, that is a great question because the Cybersecurity Act of 2015 actually is more guidance related. And it basically required 
a task force to be formed between the Department of Human Ser Health and Human Services and then private actors as well as other government actors to basically create a framework that is practical, understandable, implementable, industry-led and consensus-based voluntary cybersecurity guidance. What came out of this was basically the publication, Health Industry Cybersecurity Practices, Managing Threats and Protecting Patients. It's also known as HICP. Because the guide relates to raising awareness and providing guidance on the prevention, detection, and correction of a cybersecurity event, it also relates to all of the potential forums for the maintenance, creation, receipt, or transmission of protected health information. That guidance, coupled with the recent HHS Health App Fact, which came out about a couple of months ago, those are both great resources to make sure that you're on top of where the government's going. Again, the facts are guidance and not law, but it really does give insight into what OCR is looking for. Are the facts these question and answers that HHS just released? They are, in fact, those okay. five Q&As that were just released. And that's why is I'm sure the initial evolution of HIPAA and the High Tech Act evidence, it is an ongoing process, but Fundamentally, it relates to the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the data. So as long as an organization is really honing in on those three broad areas, that's where anyone should start. So basically, there were five questions posed and five answers provided in terms of covered entity and business associate liability in relation to the app. And the first one was, does a HIPAA-covered entity that fulfills an individual's request to transmit EPHI to an application or other software, an app, bear liability? Again, the lawyer answer is it depends, and everybody loves that. Basically, the fundamental question to ask is, did the covered entity have this app created on their behalf to integrate with their EHR? Or is this something analogous to Fitbit where, and I don't even know if Fitbit can receive medical records or that type of information, but it's a common term that people are familiar with. So if a patient comes in and says, I want my medical record transferred to my Fitbit app, and the hospital would prudently say, okay, we can do that but we are not liable for that transmission or any breach that occurs because we did not coordinate with that app. And then basically the second question builds on that and says, what liability does a covered entity face if it fulfills an individual's request to send their EPHI using an unsecured method to an app? Again, it comes down to what the individual wants but with respect to an app, I would advise a covered entity to consider informing the individual of the potential risks involved, 
the first time that the individual makes a request and have them sign some type of release and acknowledgement that they understand what unsecured transmission means and that there might be consequences down the line or the app might have their own privacy or terms and conditions associated with it. So that could be important. Question three segues into if an individual directs a covered entity to send EPHI to a designated app, does a covered entity's electronic health re record system bear HIPAA liability? And again, that is the, it depends. If the EHR system developer owns the app or has a business associate relationship with the app developer and provides the app to, through, or on behalf of the covered entity, then the EHR system developer could potentially face HIPAA liability. Question four then says, can a covered entity refuse to disclose EPHI to an app chosen by an individual because of concerns about how the app will use or disclose the EPHI it receives? The answer to that is a resounding no, and really the covered entity cannot be paternalistic in this sense. And as long as they advise the patient, that's what I would recommend doing. And it is only that particular patient's EPHI that is being transmitted, then the onus is on the patient and potentially the app on the receiving end. But again, the covered entity should not have that liability. And finally, does HIPAA require a covered entity or its EHR system developer to enter into a business associate agreement? with an app designated by the individual in order to transmit EPHI to the app. Again, it depends, and it depends upon whether or not the app was developed to create, receive, maintain, or transmit EPHI on behalf of the covered entity or was provided or on behalf of the covered entity through its business associate. If that's the case, then a business associate agreement would be required. Thank you. Those were a great explanation of the five areas of the question and answers that HHS has just released. So thank you on that. And thank you. I think we're just about out of time on our show, but do you have any other, any other thoughts on HIPAA and health apps? Just to round it out, I would say that the security rule requirements apply equally to health apps as they do to any other type of EPHI. Secondly, if a medical device is an issue that connects to an app, it's important to read the Food and Drug Administration's guidance and regulations on that. And lastly, I would ask the question, Again, what is the relationship between the covered entity and the app developer and or the EHR system developer? Because that is where, according to the facts, the crux of the liability would lie. Wonderful advice. Well, thank you, Rachel. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Katherine Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Katherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, 
compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.